planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. He who controls the space controls the universe. Stop fear. Fear is the mind killer. And fear is the little death that brings total liberation. But sire, we can't leave all this spice. Damn the spice. Get out of there. The Duke will die before these eyes, and he'll know, he'll know that it is I, then Vladimir Harkonnen, who encompasses his doom. This is genocide, the deliberate and systematic destruction of all life on Arrakis. We Fremen have a saying. God created Arrakis to train the faithful. One cannot go against the word of God. I will kill him! Father, the sleeper has awakened! Hello, everybody. Welcome to Treks and Sci-Fi Podcast number 395. My name is Chris Clemente. And with me is Brian, Brian Dunn. That's right, Brian Dunn. He's a who actually who actually lives on Arrakis. That's uh, right. I was going to say that. As soon as I moved to Phoenix, I felt like I am a Fremen. <laughs> I found my inner Fremen here on in the, in the dunes of Phoenix. If you find some spice, and you'll you'll be set. Oh yes. Nothing <laughs> Breaking Bad. <laughs> and if you God, don't get me started on that show. I love it. Okay, and if you can't tell by that little banter. We're talking about the story of Dune by Frank Herbert. We're going to be discussing the novel and the two filmed versions, which is a 1984 movie by David Lynch and a miniseries done on the Sci-Fi Channel in 2000. So um, let's get started, I guess. Indeed. Okay. The, uh, the, the novel Dune is set in the year 10191, which is uh, quite a long way away. And the, the universe is run on a substance called spice, which is available on the planet, which is Arrakis. Dune. Dune. Desert planet. That's right. So, without further ado, let's, just, let's get into some of the plot. The Padishah Emperor Shaddam Karino IV has come to fear <clears throat> House Atreides, partly due to the growing popularity of Duke Leto Atreides, and also because of the town of Leto's fighting force. He's beginning to rival the effectiveness of the Emperor's own dreaded Imperial Sardaukar Guard. I always have a hard time with that. <laughs> Should lose Secundus. That's right, the prison planet. But that's later on in the story. <laughs> Shaddam decides that House Atreides must be destroyed, but cannot risk an attack on a single house, which would, by necessity, unite the other houses against him. The Emperor instead uses the centuries-old feud between House Atreides and House Harkonnen to disguise his assault. Enlisting the brilliant and power-hungry Baron Vladimir Harkonnen in his plan to trap and eliminate the Atreides, Shaddam forces Leto to accept the lucrative fief, 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 fiefdom, fiefdom. There we go. Fiefdom of the desert planet Arrakis, the only known source of the spice melange previously controlled by the Harkonnens. Enter into this conflict the Bene Gesserit. Their ancient breeding program, not only one generation from completion, has suddenly become horribly jeopardized. 
They had planned to breed an Atreides daughter with a Harkonnen son to unite the two bloodlines and produce their long-awaited super-being, the Kwisatz Haderach. However, fate would decide otherwise, and instead of bearing a daughter, the Bene Gesserit Jessica, the Duke's concubine, fulfilled her beloved Duke's wishes for a son and bore Paul. The Atreides are unable to withstand a devastating Harkonnen attack. Supported by Imperial Sardaukar disguised as Harkonnen. Captured, Duke Leto dies in a failed attempt to assassinate Baron Harkonnen. Paul and Jessica escape into the deep desert. They manage to join a band of Fremen, ferocious fighters who ride the giant sandworms of Arrakis. Shai Shai Hulud. Paul and his mother quickly learn the ways of the Fremen while teaching them the Bene Gesserit method of fighting. Jessica becomes a reverend mother. A side note, I'm really remarkable. I just finished the first novel of Dune again for the first time in years, and it's like, wow, we're really going through stuff very quickly. But Yeah, I, you know what's funny is that I literally on my bike ride this morning finished also listening to the audio book. Yeah. I spent four, five, four hours of it is in my head right now. Okay. Moving on. The Lady Jessica becomes a reverend mother, taking the concentrated spice while pregnant, which is called the water of life. She's pregnant with the Duke's second child, her daughter, Alia. Alia experiences all that her mother does from the Spice, gaining wisdom before even being born. Living on the Spice diet of the Fremen, Paul's prescience increases dramatically, enabling him to foresee future events and gaining him a religious respect from the Fremen, who regard him as their prophesied messiah, the Mahdi. Mahdi? <laughs> as Paul grows in influence, he begins to plot revenge against the Harkonnen rule of the planet under his new Fremen name, Muad'Dib. Disturbed by his lack of complete prescience, Paul decides to take the water of life, an act that could kill him. After three weeks in a near-death state, Paul emerges as the Kwisatz Haderach. Looking into space, he sees the Emperor and the Harkonnens have amassed a huge armada to invade the planet and regain control. Paul also discovers the way to control spice production on Arrakis. Alia is captured by the Sardaukar and brought to the planet's capital, Arrakeen, to the Emperor himself. At that moment, under cover of a gigantic sandstorm, Paul and his army of Fremen attack the city. Alia kills the Baron with a poison needle during the confusion. The Gamjabar. Yes. Paul quickly overcomes the city's defenses and confronts the Emperor, threatening to destroy the Spice, and thereby effectively ending space travel and crippling both the Imperial power and Bene Gesserit in one shot. Realizing that Paul is capable of doing all he has threatened, the Emperor is forced to abdicate and promises his daughter in marriage to Paul. Paul ascends the throne, his control of Arrakis and the Spice establishing a new kind of power over the Imperium, which will change the face of the known universe. And that is a so... such a quick <laughs> rundown of Dune. I know that's that... It, that's, it, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you and done. good night. There's nothing else to tell here. <laughs> I'm to see you, folks. We're all done. It's yeah, just... It's... It's because it's such an intricate plot. I don't. I didn't think that we should go too deep into it because there's so many branches and there's so many characters, sort of like Game of Thrones. That I think that a basic overview is better, and we can kind of conversate about about the plot in the particulars. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think I think for anyone who's who's taken on this material can appreciate that. You know, Dune really is is the science, and not just the original book Dune, but all of the the books that Herbert wrote in this universe. It's really the equivalent of the Lord of the Rings for um, science fiction. Um, you know, it's 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 a massive universe that he created, and 
there are so many intricacies of that universe, so much detail that is is in these books um, and introduced here in the in in the initial novel Dune, that it's prohibitively difficult to try and sum it all up and 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 sort of categorize it and make it all neat and tidy. And that's, I think, when, when we continue this conversation, when we get to the the att- efforts to make this 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 story into a film, is is where a lot of the problems for those films come into play because this is such a big universe. But let's talk real quick about the origins of the story. Um, Frank Herbert uh, apparently was living in Florence, Oregon, which might be near our good friend Rick Moyer. I'm not quite sure where Florence is. I guess it's on the coast, and um, he. Uh, was, the, the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture was attempting to use poverty grass to stabilize the damaging sand dunes of this area. Herbert claimed in a letter to his literary agent that moving the dunes could swallow whole cities, lakes, rivers, highways. Herbert's articles on the dunes, the, titled They Stopped the Moving Sands, was never completed and only published decades later in The Road to Dune, but its research sparked Herbert's interest in ecology. And I found that interesting. I mean, clearly... Ecology plays a lot in the in in Dune, and less so in the in the, the subsequent stories. But certainly, that's a big part of what is happening in Dune, and that was uh, that was apparently a personal interest of Frank Herbert's. He spent the next five years researching, writing, and revising a literary work that was eventually eventually serialized in Analog Magazine from 1963 to 1965 as two shorter works called Dune World and Prophet of Dune. Um, Herbert dedicated his work, quote, to the people whose labors go beyond ideas into the realm of real materials, to the dry land ecologists, wherever they may be, in whatever time they work. This effort at prediction is dedicated to humility and admiration. I have no idea what he means by that, but you get, but you get, I just, I, you know, and again, this was interesting reading this because I, I never got, I get a lot of a sense of what Frank Herbert's politics and were reading Dune. You can get it. You can definitely get an appreciation for for maybe what what his social commentary was going from his standpoint. What is the social commentary he was trying to make in these stories was that I didn't actually pick up on. I thought that was pretty interesting, and it was clearly a driving force of of what created this this material. So the serialized version of those works was expanded, reworked, and submitted to more than twenty publishers, all of whom tur- turned it down. Wow. The novel, which is now titled Dune, was finally accepted and published by Chilton Books, the the guys who make the repair manuals for cars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I read that, I was like, no way, that's, <laughs> that's just crazy. But you know, you could see, you could see. A, I mean, a, a publisher probably looking at this, going, you know, no one's going to get it, and uh, or maybe they felt it was. But this is, you know, during the '60s, this was a, certainly was a time of, of intelligent science fiction works coming out. So I, it's surprising that he had such difficulty in getting the work. Initially brought to uh, published, um, and I guess it was, I'm not even sure when was it published in the early it was late 60s, early 70s. It, I, I think it was 66. Um, okay, I, I, I should have had that information. That's, no, yeah, I, I just wasn't sure exactly. I know it was in the mid 60s or late 60s. Um, okay, because my uncle, I remember, uh, was a big hippie and he recommended it to me <laughs> when I was younger. When I and you say when you're talking about Frank Herbert and and you, he wrote something, you're like, I have no idea what that meant. But he considered poetry to be like the highest form of the English language. Um, he loved poetry. Um, one of his best friends was a poet, and um, 
I guess that's why we see so, some of the songs that Gurney Halleck sings or in the novel. He wrote all those, and they're certainly very poetic. So that's a good point. I didn't I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, there's a lot of um, underlying stories and themes here that are kind of real world applicable you know, from the environmentalism and the ecology aspect to the declining um, imperial em- em- empire kind of thing. There's a lot of Arab and Islamic references, obviously, in Dune. A lot of the religious acts- aspects of the Fremen culture have a tremendous amount of Arab and Islamic references. And the one of the things that, that Dune really touches upon head-on are gender issues. I mean, that's a real big part of, of the Dune world and, and gender roles and how he addresses that with the with the you know the, the groups of the groups within the story like the Bene Gesserit that are all women um, and then you have the Mentants which are the human computers that are all men um, and it's a, it's interesting how how he sort of sets that up within a, a sort of a what seems like a, a patriarchal society of the Empire but uh, really one where women have an have an incredible amount of influence and this book is very much driven by women characters as absolutely as, as, as sort of the underlying from the reverend mother mohayim to to jessica i mean it's their it, their plans and plots are what have have brought all of this to a head and and it, that continues into the other books certainly um after dune when uh, when he keeps revisiting the universe and keeps expanding on the story yeah absolutely i mean alia ends up running the empire for a yeah. while and um and yeah, it's it's Jessica's choice to have a son that created the uh, downfall of the uh, the current system. Yeah. Like, so let, let, let's let's just sort of talk talk about about the book in in kind of a chronological way. So, you know, it, so the book starts off uh, with you know with Paul and the Atreides still on Caladan. Well, actually, no. The book starts off; they're already on their way to Dune. Actually, that's they... mm, no. Um, <clears throat> The this is where some of the things diverge, and in then the, in the uh, but in the um, the film versions they are still in Castle Caladan in the beginning, but I remember in Shul- in Dune the miniseries they were already on the way to Dune they filmed it that way, but in the book they are still on Caladan, if I if I remember correctly I'm pretty sure I just refreshed it, but anyway it does start off on Caladan and it's sort of a, a contrast and it's. Well, you know, this whole universe is really interesting. You, you sort of learn about it through the telling of the story. Um, Herbert doesn't spend a lot of time doing a lot of exposition. What he instead does is he introduces ideas and concepts about the world and about the characters through the course of the story. And and a lot of it is through internal dialogue that the characters have. Um, and then he, a lot of things he just puts out there and lets you sort of figure it out. Um, well, the first thing that really jumped out at me reading this book um, initially was ha- was the lack of technology. Here we are so far in the future that it's kind of like, well, why, why does it seem like the technology has been almost curtailed? And then you learn slowly that this is a universe where man has basically eradicated computers from their lives because of a war that occurred where thinking machines tried to destroy humanity. Um, it's, not, it's not discussed a lot in this book. It is discussed later in other books more. But um, So you have, you have this world that's in the future where interstellar travel is accommodated uh, via a group called the Guild, these navigators who are addicted to the spice and who have taken this, the spice allows them to basically guide ships through folding of space to go from one planet to the next, but they are the only way that humanity stays united. 
is via the this this form of transportation. Otherwise, um, you know, they have lasers, they have ships that can fly into space, they have even personal body shields and things like that. But the the technology is it's almost like the the universe is brought to a technological stalemate uh, where instead of using guns or lasers because of the effects of shooting a laser into a shield can can cause an atomic explosion using knives and it's it's very it's great the way they do that though they make it very believable that here's this world that almost is feudalistic mm-hmm. so far in the future yeah i i know it's one of the things that really always attracted me to dune is that it is a futuristic story and they do have like you said lasers and stuff but really you could set this in a, in medieval times and you know change dune to like some island or you know what i mean and it really wouldn't change the story all that much if you had magic and things like that i i love i love that there's sword masters um the uh the way that the um that they fight is really interesting it really is um great was a great conceit that herbert comes up with the fact that the like atomic weapons have been have been banned. They that that the use of atomic weapons against um, the houses that are that are these that are the basically, basically these fiefdoms, these king, these kingdoms within the empire, um, House Conan, House Atreides. These are all you know. These are planets, and that the use of atomic weapons or, or weapons of mass destruction have been have been outlawed, and everybody adheres to that. The use of computers that to thinking of thinking, thinking machines, machines. eliminate. And humanity has has adhered to that, and the result is that uh, this culture, where, like you said, they instead of using the the weapons of the future, they're using weapons of our past. You know, where the knife and the sword and things like that, hand to hand combat is actually more prevalent and more deadly and more dangerous. The thinking, the idea of a computer has been usurped by the idea of and the the conceit of the Mentants, which are a group people um, who are basically Humans that have have their intellect expanded via use of the spice. So again, the spice provides the guild navigators the ability to fold space and keep humanity together, unified. The mentants replace computers, and 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 again, you you just sort of learn this as you look at the mentants, like like Thufir Hawit, who is the mentant for the Atreides house. Every house has, or Peter De, uh, De Vries, who um, who's the Harkonnen mentant. You learn about that each house has one of these guys in place to act as basically the computer and to help, you know, advise and give it, give advice to the, uh, to the leaders of the great houses. Um, and then you have the Bene Gesserit, which in my mind in, in Dune, like I said, a really incorporate everything. They have incredible mental and prescient abilities. They have incredible fighting and strength abilities. They have the abilities to control their body, their biology, their chemistry, um, and they are—they're sort of almost like—and and they have a whole different agenda, where, like you said, they're trying to to develop this this super being, this Kwisatz Haderach, and and it's just—it's fascinating the way he sets this whole thing up. And you know, I, I always look at Bene Gesserit as as one of by far the coolest. Like if if I could be someone in the Dune universe, I want to be one of the Bene Gesserit because they they seem to have the most going on, and they're just such an interesting idea and it's such an interesting you know concept for the story. Yeah, it it really is, and and again, they don't have androids, they don't have computers. I mean, the level, it really, I think, even though it's high concept science fiction, it does there is a level of grounding to it. 
um, that it's uh, humans have have to depend on themselves more or less in this universe and their own, you know, machinations. And, I mean, and if you read the prequels, which you can or you can't, um, you find out some of the reasons for that. I we'll get it, we might get into the prequels uh, later. <laughs> I know, I know you have some you have some interesting thoughts in those that I think differ from mine because um, I get the sense that you don't care for them as much as I do because I I did kind of enjoy them. I I like them as Dune. I, I like them as because they're they're set in that universe. There's there I think that they're in some points are a little bit sloppy. Yeah, yeah, I, that's, that's I think that's a fair criticism. Yeah. So yeah, so we we get the setup of these great houses and all underneath the umbrella of this one em- this emperor and. You learn quickly that House, like you said, House Atreides has, has been given Arrakis to manage, and Arrakis is the one planet where the spice melange is, is found in the universe, making it the most important planet in the universe. And uh, but it, it's clear to Duke Leto and his family that this is this is kind of a setup because their their arch rivals, the Harkonnens, had run Arrakis for years, and now the Emperor was turning it over to Duke Leto, and turns out he's doing that because he's in, in cahoots with the Harkonnens because he wants to eliminate uh, Leto from the Landstrad, which is the basically all the great houses collective together into a, into a, a group that, he, that the Emperor... It, basically, it's like a balance of power. There's the, the Landsrad and, and the Chome Corporation and the Empire form like a three-legged stool at, uh, of, of the sources of power in the universe keeping the balance. And of, course, to... <laughs> of course, in the story, we do find out which one of those has the most power, don't we? <laughs> yeah, they go to, and they go to Arrakis, and you know, the, the, the story really does move. For such a big book and so, for such a dense, a dense book, it really does move along pretty pretty efficiently and with a lot of economy you know it never feels like it wastes a lot of time it gets us to it gets us to arrakis it gets the house of trades established there we learn about um you know we obviously we learn about paul being born to lady jessica and, and duke Lido and that she was supposed to give birth to a girl to perpetuate to marry to a harkonnen to, to perpetuate this genetic um manipulation that the bene Gesserit are engaged in that she doesn't, um, and that Paul has some unique powers and is almost like a female Bene Gesserit, or a male Bene Gesserit, rather. Um, and you know, they get to Arrakis, they, they meet the Fremen for the first time. Um, we learn about the different people under, you know, who advise, and are, like Duncan Idaho, and that advise Duke Leto. And, uh, and immediately, though, you know, this, things turn to shit, and the Harkonnen, in, in, in the, with the support of the Empire's troops, you know, uh, the Sardaukar that are in Harkonnen garb attack and basically the Duke is killed and you know Paul and Jessica are sent out into the desert thought to be dead but are rescued by the Fremen and uh, leading to this whole you know Paul's whole whole rise to awareness of his powers and his abilities and uh, what do you think about Paul as, as, as the character as a character I mean how does how does he strike you throughout this throughout the book um Paul, I mean, he's the focal point of the novel. He he is a super, super well-assured 15-year-old kid. Um, and when he, be, when he gets to Dune, his prescient abilities start to unlock. Um, 
because of the spice that's everywhere, and you learn that the spice is the thing that gives everybody these that people that have that ability. It enhances those powers, and um, I, I, he's it's a, he's an interesting character because he he loves his mother, but then he begins to resent her, especially their, 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 when you're talking about their their journey into the desert, which is one of my favorite parts of the book because it really, I think, is the beginning of his change from a from a you know, a ducal son to sort of a uh, something more. Um, and that transition is, I think his transition is very, very interesting throughout the novel. I think that of all the characters in the book, I think obviously his is meant to grow and change the most. I think probably his does grow and change the most. And um, he really, he, he's, he has these abilities to see the future. And I don't, I don't think that he's particularly pleased about it. I think that, and he knows what will come and he he doesn't want it to happen, but he in the end he he sees no other way, and 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 he really is a at, at times a pretty a, a touching character, I think. Um, I, you you definitely you definitely empathize with him and feel feel the struggle, and I think her does a great job in 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 giving us a little insight as to what it is that Paul is so afraid of. What does he see when 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 his prescience becomes so overwhelming because of his exposure to the spice and eventually because he goes through this, the ritual of drinking the water of life, which is basically the regurgitated water from a, a, a baby sandworm and, and really achieves this, this incredible, he becomes the Pizat and he can, he can see into the future and he, can, and he, has, he hears in his head the voices of the millions that have come before him. Um, you know, it, it is really... They tease Herbert teases us with the idea of like what is he seeing that's going to happen, and we actually don't find out what's going to happen in this book. This is no. it, it makes me wonder. I wonder if he always intended to perpetu- to continue the story into the into the other under other books where where this the jihad that is created by the by the by the legend and of Paul, you know, in Muad'Dib. How if, if if Herbert always intended for that to be the case? Did he always feel like there was going to be more books to the story, or more 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 a continuation of the story? Did you ever hear anything about that? Or well, I know that one of the lessons of the story that he definitely wanted to impart was that it isn't good. I mean, it isn't a good idea to follow a superhero, and that is what he saw Paul Atreides as a superhero, yeah. and um, he really wanted to. Show the uh, the consequences of having a guy like that around to everybody else around him. Yep. Yeah. You know, he, because the the consequences are dire. I mean, people. You know, that's it, this is is it is not necessarily a book with a a happy ending. It's not a not an unhappy ending. Not to spoil anything, but it uh, there are definitely real real consequences that have to be accepted and uh, to for for the ultimate for the ultimate super being, as you said. That's a good that's a good way to re- refer to him as. Yeah, the Fremen. The Fremen. I think the Fremen are also a fascinating um, cultural kind of creation that Herbert Herbert sort of mixes together. This sort of, like I said, Islamic, Buddhist, Zen, um, all sort of wrapped up into these these people who are very religious, very spiritual, um, and are also very dangerous and you know very aggressive and uh, um, live in this incredibly harsh environment. And I think it's really cool the way that they make water. Such a such an an integral part of their entire. Well, it's it is the key to their existence, and uh, 
how they how they deal with water, how water is is a is a running theme through this this story about its acquisition, its its disposition. What, I mean, everything about everything sort of revolves around acquiring and and retaining water. Yeah, and and and, and as you learn in the book, they they're they're really good at it, <laughs> uh, to the point where they have huge huge caches, um, which with which they want to. Um, they have a dream of changing the face of Arrakis. Um, yeah, which which in the which is definitely played up in, when we get to it more in 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 the film certainly than uh, than in the in the book. The the dream you know as 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 of Arrakis as being a planet that could sustain water and sustain vegetation and stuff was brought by uh, you know by kind right. by the and who were was who who for the purposes of discussing it was to let all of you know was the basically the emperor's guy that was sent to dune to be the ecologist and i almost get the idea that maybe kinds is is frank herbert in the story maybe he's you know he's kind of the frank herbert that you know character of the story because he has he is the ecologist he is the one who's dreaming about a ways ways that dune can become less arid and more of a, a planet capable of sustaining more life and uh it's interesting that you know that he 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 in, in basically gives the Fremen this this sort of belief that they can have this kind of a world, and then Paul steps in to to be the 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 weapon that they use to basically try and create that. Yeah, I, I do enjoy that throughout the novel, the Harkonnens and the Emperor, they discount the Fremen as you know, hey, they got a you got a few here, you got a few there. I mean, geez, you've already killed three thousand this year, but they don't realize that there's millions of Fremen on on Arrakis, and Duke Leto had an inkling of that, and that was going to be the way that he secured power on Arrakis, and it didn't happen, but it did happen through Paul. Um, and I do find that interesting. That's a great, that's a really a cool thing when they realize, oh crap, there's like a whole planet full of these people. <laughs> They're not just a few thousand. And as as much as the story is the story of of Paul's ascension to being this Kwisatz Haderach, the other aspect, the other part of Dune that I think plays that plays the best and, and is and is probably the secondary story is the Harkonnens and the Baron and his nephews attempt to basically you know gain power um, as a as an antagonist for this story, what a great, great antagonist the Harkonnens. I mean, they're really because they, they're in the book. They're they're clearly you know out for themselves, and they're clearly manipulative, and you know they're not particularly they're not nice people at all. But they're also very intelligent and very methodical, and you know whereas that gets changed in in other iterations of the story that we'll talk about. But I think the the I think Herbert spends a lot of time with the Harkonnens, uh, you know, after, after the Atreides story that it's, the, that Dune is as much about the Harkonnen story as well. And they're, you know, the, the things that they're doing behind the scenes, trying to make Dune, you know, to actually to even ascend to the, em- to, to be the emperor themselves. And I think as, in, as, in, like I said, as antagonists, I think they're just, they're the best. I really enjoy reading, reading their story. Yeah. Fade Rautha is the Paul Atreides of the, of the Harkonnens. And, I think there are a lot of people out there who've only seen maybe the the David Lynch movie and it turned them off to Dune. <laughs> yeah. And you you see the Baron Harkonnen or Harkonnen, however you want to say it. I say Harkonnen because that's how I've heard it in audiobooks. But um he's a gross he's just a big fat gross guy with 
with boils and and he's he's a pervert and there and he doesn't seem particularly clever. And the thing about the the Baron in the novel is that he's amazingly clever, and he sees he sees things that that are going on and he's plotting. I mean, I you know I wish that the that the movie had had not totally made him into a gross character, but that's for that that's the movie. I let's, I, let's move towards the movie. Let's so okay. let's. Um, there were a number of efforts to create a Dune movie, uh, one of which actually involved, in the late 70s, involved uh, Giger and um, Salvador Dali and uh, a bunch of guys who, who ended up, and, and Dan O'Bannon, who eventually w- went on to work on Alien. And that's how these, all these guys met. That was, that was in the, I think in the, like the mid-70s or late 70s. I think it was like the early 70s. I think that was, was that for the Jodorowsky one? Yeah. Oh, no. 73, it says here, Arthur Jacobs optioned the film rights to Doom, but died before the film could be developed. The Uh option taken over two years later, so in 75, by Jodorowsky, who approached, among others, Pink Floyd, (laughs) uh, Giger, to do the design work. And he actually did. uh, Giger did paintings that you can see, pre-production paintings for Dune. Uh, Jean Giraud, who's another um, set designer, character designer. Salvador Dali, who was going to play the Emperor. Cool. Orson Welles, Gloria Swanson. It was just, and this was, so this was, you know, this, this huge, huge project. And it just, it never happened because it was going to be prohibitively expensive. And, and really, really weird. (laughs) Bizarre. I I mean, there, I've seen some of the, the concept and some of the stuff that they were thinking about doing. And it was, yeah, it was just over the top. And then. In 1982 is when the, the rights lapsed and the film was purchased by Dino De Laurentiis. Um, so he had it and then he brought in uh, David Lynch and, uh, to do the pre-production and the production work, obviously, and it became Lynch's, Lynch's baby to run with. So let's talk about the, the movie. Yeah. The, the movie, I'm just, my feelings about the movie, the first time I saw the movie, all right, th- this, I'm a 38 almost. So I'm a, I'm a Star Wars kid. Um, I'm sure you're, 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 you're about five years older than me, but you've you got to be the same thing. And Dune was, was being sold to us as like a Star Wars thing. Totally. Yeah, totally. And it was not. <laughs> and um, see it in theaters? No, I did not see it in theaters. I, I, nobody would take me. I wanted to see it, but I remember the toys. And I- I went to the theaters, and you know what? You know, and you know what got me into the theaters was the was some of the trailers and stuff. The sandworms, the sandworms were cool, and I so I was on board when I saw people, you know, and the sandworms like they showed that a lot because that made it sort of like it looked like a big action movie. So, um, so yeah, no, I and and I remember walking out, and I was so confused. <laughs> I mean, oh, I mean. I just, I just did not understand this movie at all. I just didn't get it. It was it went completely over my head, and uh, and yeah, it was, it was definitely. And I think I've, that's the reaction a lot of people had. Like you said, a lot of people were were sold a bill of goods that was not what you got. And and I, I had never read the books at that point. It, when did you first read the book? I want to say that I was fourteen. Okay. So I think I really dug it. I mean. Somewhat, I, obviously, a lot of the the concepts in there, you know, they're pretty high concept. But I was re- I was a geek, 
So yeah. I was okay. And then I did watch the movie after reading the novel. It was on WPIX, which I know you know. And um, they had the semi-extended version with the prologue, with the um, with the art. Have you ever seen that version? Yep. Yeah. And I watched it, and I realized, well, this movie is okay. I mean, it's I'm having at least having a knowledge of it, I was able to comprehend it. But I was like, boy, it's it's pretty pretty divergent uh, from the novel at a lot of points. I mean, you get you 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 really do get the impression that they that David David Lynch wrote the screenplay, and that you could definitely get get the sense that he was trying to be true to the source material, but found that in order, in order to do that, he was going to have to make a, a seven-hour movie, and that he used some cheats and some shortcuts that I think, in retrospect, if he had a chance, he probably wouldn't do it the same way. Um, you know, obviously, you know, the Dune film starts off, as, as you said before, it starts off with, with about, you know, depending on which version you see, a rather long uh, exposition from, oh, what's the gal's name? Um, the actress. <laughs> Oh, um, dope. I know. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm thinking of thing. It is Virginia Madsen. That's, I was going to say Virginia. I couldn't remember. Yeah. And does a, does, basically does an intro where she tries to explain everything. Like, okay, there's Arrakis, there's Spice. Everyone needs Spice because Spice gets the Mentans to be the human computers and Spice gets the navigators to be able to fold space and it's the most precious thing in the universe. And so they do this whole... And then they, and here's, here's House Atreides, here's House Harkonnen. They are in conflict and they're, they're turning over Arrakis. And I mean, it's, it's, it's funny to watch because it's just like, wow, she's really... Here it is. Here's like everything they're trying to get in all at once. And then immediately we, we end up with a scene with the emperor. So we get introduced in the film to the emperor right away. And we also get introduced right away to the navigators. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, and it's clear the reason they do this is that the navigators are this giant slug in a, in a, in a, in a, a box, a clear, a glass box of spice gas. And this was their big, a big set piece for the film. And they wanted to be like, look, we're a science fiction movie. And look, we have a gross, you know, this gross box. And so, you know, for me, when I would imagine, I, you know, I never could imagine what the navigators actually looked like and stuff. But what did you think about Lynch's interpretation of the navigators? Uh, well, and I, I don't know. I pictured him. Well, they don't really give you an, uh, an idea. I don't think in the first novel too much of what they look like. But they, I never thought they looked like that. <laughs> Folks, you guys got to go see this movie. I mean, it, it's this giant slug with this big head, and let's face it, its face it looks like uh, a vagina. I mean, it does. I mean, you know, we don't want to be impolite, but that's what it looks like. I mean, and it's like, oh my god, this is like so weird. And the one thing though that I think, but 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 when I say weird, I don't. I wasn't like thinking that it's bad necessarily. It just maybe wasn't what I expected, but it's a definitely a cool and kind of over-the-top thing. So the navigator shows up to talk to the emperor, and we get more exposition where the navigator explains that they want Duke Leto dead. They, you know, they have this whole separate agenda that really wasn't in the book. The navigator in the book, or the guild in the book, were more standing off simply making sure that their interests, the, the flow of spice, 
from Arrakis continued. They didn't give a rat's ass who 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 sent it to them. It could be the Harkonnens, it could be the the Atreides, the Emperor. They just needed to control that because and at the end of the day, they control everything. Right. Now, what I did like about this first scene in the movie was the the guilds like entourage, like these guys that are look like they're starting to mutate a little bit, and they they speak into these microphones. They, they they don't speak English anymore. They speak like this guttural, completely unintelligible noise that gets translated by these microphones into English. The Bene Gesserit witch must leave. Leave us. Yes, my lord. Um, and this is the first time, I think, where we see really what, like a steampunk influence on this movie. I mean, it wasn't steampunk back then, but the the set design, the art direction of this movie was very steampunk. I mean, it was like everything had this very, I don't know, what, what, what's the word I'm looking for? How would you describe the Indust- art? Industrial. Industrial, right, yeah. And it's, 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 and looking at it now, I think it's awesome to look at. I mean, you look at this stuff and you go, wow, it's weird, but it's very, very cool, you know? Yeah, the set design in this movie is, is absolutely amazing. Yeah, I always like that initial scene with the guild navigator even though again it's completely it's completely you know separated from the book this never it never happens in the book that way but it's just interesting then they go to caladan and kind of a a rainy watery planet with a cool castle and we meet the duke and we meet jessica and we meet paul and uh, the reverend mother comes to test paul with the gom jabbar um and he puts his hand in the box and put your right hand in the box What's in the box? Pain. Stop. Put your hand in the box. I hold at your neck, the Gomjabar. This one kills only animals. Are you suggesting a duke's son is an animal? Let us say, I suggest you may be human. And, and and you know and that's I think that that all works pretty well. I think. What did you think about the Reverend Mother Gaius Moham? Did you did you was she kind of what you expected, or what did you think about her? Yeah, I mean that's about as close as you can get to the description in the novel of the Bene Gesserit, but maybe not some. I mean, yeah, I mean she's an old woman in black. I mean it works. <laughs> I, mean, she, I think she brings the brings, and I think the the woman who played her, I, I can't recall her name, but the woman who played her. Brings a really nice degree of sort of malice and and threat. You know, you get you get the idea that that this lady is very very powerful and influential, and uh, and you get the idea that people are afraid of her and with, with good cause. Um, and you also learn, you also get a little. You know, I think Lynch does a good job in in showing us some of their powers, like the power of voice, which is the Bene Gesserits have a, this ability to say something to you in in a tone where it can control you and make you do what they're at telling you to do. Um, and they do, I think he does a pretty good job in, in, in introducing that idea. And it's kind of, it's clear what's kind of happening without having to explain it, you know, in work, which you know, on screen. Yeah. So, so, so what do you think about um, Kyle MacLachlan as uh, Paul Atreides? I, did, I didn't know him from anything really back in 1984, I mean, uh, you know, I wasn't super familiar with the actor, and uh, you know, I think he's he's exceedingly earnest, and you know, I think that unfortunately, 
I think he doesn't do a great job playing Paul throughout this movie because I don't get much of a sense that there's much of an arc going on with him. No. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think, I think that, I think as an actor, I don't think, he, or, and I don't want to blame him because, I mean, everything is so truncated in this movie. Everything is, is, is just like boom, boom, boom. And then when they can't do it, when they can't just keep cutting forward and, and chopping the story up, they have these, these awful, awful internal dialogue expositions where you, you have to sit here and listen to Paul or his mom or someone talking in their head, explaining stuff to you, the audience, which is probably one of my biggest complaints about this movie. It makes me crazy when they do that. And I understand why, but so I don't think that Paul's journey really ever, it never feels, he never feels like the Quizak's Hatterak. He feels just like that same, he doesn't, he doesn't go anywhere. And even, you know, nothing seems to change for his character through the movie, and I think you know that's a mistake. You never get what you what you said correctly before about the novel, where you this is a this this sort of journey from this this ducal heir to the Kwisatz Haderach. I mean, you feel you 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 go through that with Paul Atreides, not so much in the book, not so much in the film. No, definitely not in the film. <laughs> in the film, he's just sort of almost one note. Um, yeah, very many, and even. Like he's just very monotone. Like I think that maybe that was a choice he made to appear to kind of figure out how do I deal with a character who kind of knows everything and you know I don't know. Um, except when he's yelling a couple times. But other than that, he's he's pretty one note, and that's unfortunate because he is the main character. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I actually have some notes here about the film that I just I wrote as I was watching it. The the idea of these weirding modules, this, these voice weapons, is a total fabrication of Lynch. I mean, about uh. this is in the book, I, and I I wonder, you know, it's interesting. Rather than the, the but the idea of the weirding way is something that is unique to the Bene Gesserit, and it's the way they fight, and it's this fast motion and they're they're able to to do these really amazing things physically it's curious that lynch felt the need to introduce these these vo- voice generated weapons and it's mentioned they're they're brought up they're brought up by the emperor in the very first scene with the navigators the emperor you know, is accuses House Atreides of developing an army and the sound weapon, and the emperor. So the emperor is already setting up House Atreides with the guild because the guild wants them killed because they see Paul as being a threat. So again, the 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 story is all different from the get go here, and yeah. they and these these weirding modules are brought in as a I'm I can't call it a MacGuffin because it's not something people are looking for, but it's just like a. I don't know. What, what do you think the reason for the, those is? What is it that Lynch was trying to accomplish with those? Well, in the book, you learn that the Emperor is afraid of Duke Leto, not only because he's popular, but because his army is as good trained as a Sardaukar, and he's doing it without having them come from a prison planet. He's doing it with loyalty. And that is how they're a good fighting force because they are loyal to the duke and it hasn't it's not ruled on fear or 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 whatever and uh, like the sardaukar and i think that maybe lynch thought that it was hard to convey that or something but yeah i could uh, see that. yeah i i think he just needed a gadget you know i i maybe he felt like chris knives weren't cool enough and he needed them to have something you can cool that sci-fi you know, and and that's what it feels like. Something 
put in there to make this more just like the funky guild navigators and to make it more sci-fi and yeah i don't it, obviously you and i agree it, does, it didn't need that and, and and it would and it detracts takes away from it takes away from this how special the Bene Gesserit are and the skills that 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 Paul and Jessica once they're they're in with the Fremen and become part of the Fremen group teach the Fremens the Fedikins the the the, the uh, soldiers of the Fremens to use and instead at, I mean, and, and then it comes out at the end, you know, where they're riding on the sandworms using this to fight the Sardar. Maybe that's it. Maybe he felt like, how, are, how am I going to convince an audience that this, these guys that live in caves wearing these cool still suits can fight the quote-unquote best, you know, army armed with, you know, you know, not lasers necessarily, but projectile weapons or whatever. Maybe he felt like he needed something to, to, to make that work. Yeah, a sci-fi trope, a laser gun. Thank you. But good. That's a that's that's a better word. So so we have these initial scenes that are that are again. The first one does not have anything to the book. That the the scene on Caladan though, prior to their departure for Arrakis, is very much from the book, and it actually sort of it plays kind of beat for beat that way. And I think that's that, those are those scenes are well done. But now we get to meet the Baron. Okay, now we go to Giddy Prime, which is Baron's homeworld, and we see. Um, we see the Baron's mentant, uh, uh, Peter Peter De Vries, right? Uh, De Vries. De Vries. De Vr- uh, Peter De Vries. Vries, thank you. Played by, oh, what's his name? Oh, Bra- I'm going to Brad Dorif. Yeah, Wormtongue from uh, Lord of the Rings. That's oh. it. And he's sitting there drinking the Sappho juice and uh, having his, chanting his little litany. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by the juice of Sapu that thoughts acquire speed, the lips acquire stains, the stains become a warning. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. And Giddy Prime is is basically portrayed as this dark, industrial, polluted hellhole. And it's cool. I mean, it's it's not necessarily what I thought of about it, but once I can't get that image of Giddy Prime out of my head. That is for me Giddy Prime when I think about it and read it in the book. Yeah. It's 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 definitely a, a singular vision of it. Uh, do, do do not do you not care for it as much? Oh, I like it. I like it. it's all it, it looks like HR Giger designed a city. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, totally. So we meet the Baron and the Baron is sitting there having these pustules on his face. <laughs> 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 and this, I got to tell you, nothing for nothing. This is a disturbing scene. This whole scene, this whole sequence with the Baron, with Raban and Fayed, and Fayed uh, played by Sting, looking very, very fit in 1984. Mm. Uh, um, but the Baron is this is this psychotic guy. I mean, he there's nothing about him that is going to lead you to think like this guy knows what you know has, is rational. He's he's portrayed as a crazy, fat beast man with with this horrible condition on his skin. You are so beautiful, my Baron. Your skin love to me. Your diseases lovingly cared for for all eternity. They're draining these things, and he lives in this horrible world with these with these 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 people with like that that everyone looks messed up on Giddy Prime, um, and he floats around in his suspenser belt, which is taken directly from the, from the novel. So that's that's true. The Baron's size, weight, and the suspenser belt system he uses to float around is all from the novel. But that's it, because Lynch decided to make him so over the top. 
and decided to include now and and, and and let's face let's just talk about another elephant in the room that I don't know if people talk about a lot but obviously the baron is is gay he's homosexual and Lynch has has portrays him in a very evil way I understand that a lot of people accuse Frank uh, Frank Herbert in the novel of being uh, as being sort of anti-gay that the way he portrays the Baron is is very homophobic. Did you did you ever get that vibe from reading the book? Um, not really. I don't think it's overt. You don't think so? No, I think that it's just his preference. I mean, he does. I, I'd say that of anybody in the novel, he makes more uh, has more. Uh, he seems more horny than all of them. That's for sure. No, I agree. I think in the novel, I I think it's handled it's handled it's handled very well and it's not i mean although i just i had read that there were people that accused him of being not only anti-women which i thought was strange but homophobic as well however lynch's version of the baron i mean he he basically goes he floats over to this this young this young man and and is caressing him and then pulls out his heart plot and, and again a, a conceit that's not in the book and it's so incredibly horrible to watch. I mean, it's a it's a terrible scene, and it really I know it really, I was always very affected by that scene. I whenever I see it, I just get really freaked out. I don't like it. No. no. Do you not like it because you feel? Do you think it's manipulative? Manipulative of Lynch, and he's trying to do this to us as the audience. I think that he couldn't portray the Baron or the Harkonnens as evil, so he had to make them so over the top evil, gross. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, Raban is drinking a bug. He like squishes a bug, and he's drinking it. Who's gonna do that? Right. It's 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 exactly right. It's so that it's just it's the guy at the end when he pulls out the heart plug, and then he goes under that shower. He's under that shower, and it's like it looks like almost like blood or oil is dripping on him, and it's just like, oh my god, this is horrible. The Baron never changes from that. It's always gonna be that. There's never any. Any moment where the Baron is portrayed as anything but this just crazy psychotic nut job, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we meet the Baron. We we're, we're sort of meeting everyone. We got everyone in place, and uh, you know, and very quickly, you know, they on Arrakis, and then they there's the fight, the battle scene, and boy, I got to tell you, where did the special effects budget go? <laughs> <laughs> it probably went into art direction because it certainly wasn't spent on the special effects for like for like battles or anything like that. No, there's a lot of I don't and, well they they also spend it on on pugs. Yeah. <laughs> Patrick Stewart holds a pug. Oh, that's right. We should we should mention that you do get a chance to see Patrick Stewart as the uh, Gurney Halleck who is training Paul and is the uh is basically the 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 the, the leader of uh, the army, I suppose, of, of the Atreides. And, uh, you know, what's, what's so great about, about, about him in this is that he, Patrick Stewart has looked the same for the past 35 years. Absolutely. I mean, Patrick does not look like a young Patrick Stewart in Dune. He looks like Patrick Stewart does today. I know. So it's so funny. I look at him going, man, the guy just looks the same. He didn't, was he ever young or has he always just been that? I think he's always looked like that with maybe he had a little bit more hair at one point. So yeah, so we get the you know we we move in we we get the the attack and all that happens and we get the uh, the tooth, we get the, the tooth, tooth, <laughs> which is taken from the book where Doctor Yui, who's the uh, who's the Atreides doctor, 
um, basically sells them out to to the Harkonnens, and uh, he right before the uh, Baron captures Duke Leto, puts a false tooth in his mouth that the Duke can bite down on and, and expel this cloud of deadly gas and hopefully kill the Baron, but doesn't succeed. But the scene the scene plays out in the book, in the movie, and in the miniseries, kind of all the same. It, it's always sort of, it, it is, it's kind of funny. With all these, don't remember the tooth, you know? And then, well, and what's his name? Who's Dr. Yui? It's um, Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell. Um, from Quantum Leap and Battlestar Galactica she gets to show up and say, the tooth, the tooth. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, and then, and, then the, and then the story really kind of, for me, the, the movie kind of really gets into, goes off the rails because I just, it, it rushes through so much. It gets, it gets Paul and Jessica outside and in, in, in the desert, found by the Fremen, we meet Sean Young, who plays Charney, the his uh, Paul's so, you know soon to be uh, girlfriend, wife, and and uh, mother to his son. But their love story is completely rushed. I mean, there's no there's there's never any sense that there's any closeness between them. It just it just seems to be cursory. It's like oh, they get together and they fall in love, and now we have to move on. You know? Yeah. It just and- seems all of this gets really rushed for rushed around. Yeah, definitely. The once he gets to the Fremen, it's a very quick succession. Yeah, yeah. So, and and, and I do like the sandworms, though. I mean, I think the, I think the portrayal of the sandworms in in the movie were, were really well done. Um, and the effects can be somewhat lacking, as we said before, but um, I like visually. I thought they looked pretty cool. Yeah, they look like they should. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're they're and they're just a puppet. I mean, yeah. they, look, they look great though. So Paul becomes a Kwisatz Haderach, and uh, in in due course we have our final battle between you know, Paul and the Fremen and uh, the Emperor, and they they basically come crashing. They blow up the shield, this this giant mountain of rocks to, uh, with their atomic weapons, and allow a storm. And the sandworms could come in, and they ride the sandworms in and use their vocal whatever weirding modules to to fight and you know they have this big showdown at the end uh between the emperor and uh fayed uh, uh harkon and uh, paul and i thought i thought the ending was 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 pretty good i thought it, and it played it played very similar to the book yeah except for the rain except for the rain right so yeah so to have a happy ending david lynch felt compelled to have it rain on dune <laughs> yeah because that makes sense And and boy, that little girl that plays Alia, ooh, she was creepy. She is a creeper. There's no doubt about it. And I think that I don't think that's her voice. Why? I hope not. <laughs> My brother is coming, Baron, <laughs> with many Fremen warriors. <laughs> there, I tell you, there are there are so many moments in the movie that I laugh out loud. Not because I'm like, oh, this is so stupid, but simply because it just, it's so clunky uh, the way, when you read the book and then watch the movie, you're like, you can see what, you know, especially with these internal exposition and dialogue things that they do. 
and it just it's so it just doesn't work it just it's just so awkward it's de- it's definitely a cri- any people that criticize the movie say i don't know what's going on and everybody's talking to themselves yeah i mean and people you know to, to i mean i watched i, I tried to to learn as much as I could about the making of the film and this the special features are pretty much non-existent on the blu-ray and you know they do some of the art direction stuff and model work stuff and they show that which is kind of cool and then um they have Taylor Rensis's daughter I guess is the only one I think she's or not wife I think it's a I think it's his it's daughter, daughter Raffaella right and she's she came out and said basically because people have always have always thought or maybe even hoped that there was a four-hour cut of this movie that we never saw right. that, that made it so much more coherent. And there were behind there were some cut scenes that are on the DVD that are kind of interesting that show Paul in the siege uh, fighting um, oh the Fremen that he killed. That Jameis. He, that's right, friend of Jameis. Um, they have that scene. They have a scene um, where. Jessica meets the the Reverend Mother of the uh, of the Siege, and they talk. And uh, so at least you could tell, and that actually made me feel good, more better about the movie because I was like, well, at least Lynch was really trying to make this work, and he just ran out of time and money. I looked, that, that's what it feels like. It just feels like he just he he couldn't make this movie as big as he wanted to. There is this perception that there was a four-hour version of the movie edited by David Lynch, but that kind of never really happened because a movie that's got I don't know, 800 effects shot it had in that movie, and we had nothing. We had just finished shooting. We hadn't even shot a lot of the models. It was basically just finished shooting with the principal actor, so we would have seen missing, you know, big slogs of film. But, you know, it had an idea of the flow of the story. Two weeks after we completed principal photography with the actors, we had an assembly. This assembly was four hours and 20 minutes long. And I think that that's when the concern happened that the movie was going to be impossible to tell that story in a two and a half hour version. And so in order to make it intelligible, something had to go because, you know, you just can't take four hours and it's a complex, you know, it's a complex story. It's a difficult story anyhow. And, you know, unfortunately, obviously, it, from the standpoint of a, is it is it the novel Dune in a movie form? No way, no day. Is it an interesting movie to watch? Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I enjoy watching it. Um, I would, it's not something I would watch a lot of, but I do enjoy watching it. Yeah. Now, there is a production that had about five hours of screen time to, to, to use for Dune. And uh, that was made in 2000. And that's the miniseries. Arrakis. Dune. Wasteland of the Empire. And the most valuable planet in the universe. Because it is here, and only here, where spice is found. Why have we come here, Father? Greatest wealth in the universe. A never-ending struggle to defend it. This is how the trade is now. It's time to take the life of my son! Here, we need desert. Fear is my killer. Don't face my fear. Long to your time, I was bred to my destiny. Of his We have a traitor among them. His face, strike now! 
Here we settle this vendetta once and for all. They know precisely where we are and what we can do. In order for the Empire to survive, the spice must flow. And House Harkonnen will be more powerful than ever. You are a desert power. And nothing can stop you. The shield wall is breached, Your Majesty. This is Vendetta! And um, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna. There, there's there's a lot of differences. I want to do a little a clip here that's uh, kind of showcases the differences in the portrayal of the Baron Harkonnen, and it is startlingly different. So here's a clip. have a raptor's bat for myself he who controls the spice controls the universe and what Piter did not tell you is we have control of someone who is very close very close to duke leo this person this traitor will be worth more to us than 10 legions of sadaka and who is this traitor i won't tell you who the traitor is or when we'll attack However, the Duke will die before these eyes, and he'll know, he'll know that it is I, then Vladimir Harkonnen, who encompasses his doom. <laughs> and then, at the moment of his greatest confidence the traitor strikes a traitor who that remains my little secret for now what about the other great houses they're sure to protest perverting common wisdom nephew is the mark of all great conspiracies you see nephews a popular man arouses jealousy and duke leto is a very popular man the other great houses will be glad to get rid of him even though they would never admit it the spice will flow. The Emperor will be pleased, and House Harkonnen will be more powerful than ever. Alone and vulnerable at the edge of the universe, Valiant Duke Leto will finally come face to face with fear. When I'm through, he won't know whom to trust, not even that Benny Jezzeret witch he sleeps with. They'll all be turning on one another like rats in a flood. By the time the traitor is fully revealed, the fate of our traitors will already be sealed. Yeah, it's like it's like night and day. Um, you know, from a from a visual standpoint, first of all, how did you did you like the look of the miniseries? I I like a lot of it, and a lot of it I don't like. Um, I think that a lot of the costumes in it are completely ridiculous. Really? Yeah, like the the Bene Gess, the Reverend Mother has like a <laughs> freaking like 
shark fin helmet that you know it's not practical. The emperor is wearing like a like plastic armor with wings. I mean, flats and stuff. Yeah. I, I like the I like it. I do like a lot of it. I I I I think that they definitely, as far as characters go, they the the Paul Atreides character is allowed to go through an arc. Um, he starts off like a brat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a complete like little jerk, almost. And then at the end, you know, he is what he is. He's 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 the emperor. He's becoming the emperor. He's, and 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 it is a, t- a completely different Paul at the end of the miniseries than you see at the beginning. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah. No. I. I. I and I. What's what I find really interesting about watching the miniseries is it. It almost. It almost go. It almost plays out like a like a staged play. In terms of the sets, the lighting, like you'll see a character move into light and then like the light will fade out. And and it's it's very theatrical in the way the miniseries is sort of filmed. And I think that 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 goes part and parcel with with your observation about the costuming is definitely very theatrical and over the top there. I certainly think that from from I think we could both agree that it gets the book far more correct than than Lynch ever even attempted to do. I mean, it does, I think it plays much, much more linear and much more in tune with the way that the book sort of unfolds um, in the miniseries, clearly because they had a lot of time. Um, and I actually, I like, I like the way I'm not, I'm not wild about all the performances. I, I think Jessica's great. I think Paul, the, the, the actual place, Paul does a good job. Not, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of, um, of of the Duke though um, portrayed by um, William Hurt, I I don't know he he lacked any sense of gravitas. I thought that I thought that um, the the guy who played him in the movie I forget anyone's name Jor- played- Jorgen Pronchnow. Everyone may not recognize the name, but if you saw him, you go, oh, it's that guy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I never felt like he had a lot of a lot of sense of gravitas. He just sort of felt I don't know kind of. Yeah. It's because every scene that William Hurt's in in, in in doing it, he's like underplaying it to the max. My son always says you have a feline grace, Duncan. I didn't want to startle you, my lord. The latest immigration reports. The Fiat regime will be as bad as the Harkonnens. We're losing too many. Spice hunters, drivers, weather scanners, dune men will need. Should I persuade some to stay? No, I have something more important for you to do. I want you to go into the desert. I'm getting reports of hundreds, perhaps thousands, in villages, what they call sieges. In the deep desert, beyond the mountains. The Harkonnens knew that the desert people hunted them for sport. I doubt they'll expect any better from us. Then we have to change that. You know what I mean? Like, he's just not, he's like, you know... Uh, here there's desert power. I mean, it's not like at least uh, Jurgen there in the in the movie. You, you bought that he was a duke, and he had a. He, first of all, he has a cool voice. Second of all, you know, he played it a little bit more regal. This guy's like he's almost like a CEO or something. You know, it's like I don't know. Yeah, I didn't. I don't. I'm not a big William Hurt fan, and he certainly isn't the person I would have chose to play Duke Leto in this movie in this uh, miniseries. 
interesting choice, and and the way that the as I recall, the miniseries was billed and advertised on on the Sci-Fi Channel at the time. Um, they they wanted the name. They, it was a name, and so they they were able to put his name at the very top and say, "Look who we got. We got William Hurt." You know, so it feel like that kind of casting. Yeah. Now the, the you can see now the visuals are interesting because uh, for the desert scenes, they decided to use these big painted backdrops. Yeah. Instead, yep. instead of having it outside, they made they filled up a stage with sand, and they literally had these beautiful. Now you can you can pretty much tell when you're watching it that that's what it is. I, I, I like I said before, I think I think this whole miniseries is is almost like a stage play. It has everything about it has that feel. A lot of this, a lot of the set pieces have that feel. Yeah, yeah, it does. It definitely feels like it could be translated into a play. Um, the CGI in it is. Sketchy. It's a, some of it's good, some of it's not so good. Um, but as far as like having Dune on TV, on TV or in a filmed version that you know kind of conveys the story in a in a coherent way, you can't. You really. I mean, right now this is this is what we got, and it's it's pretty darn good as far as that goes. Uh, yeah, I think. I mean, it was certainly very early in CG in the sort of the CGI coming to a forefront as an effects um, process. And, you know, yeah, you're right. The, I mean, the, I th- actually, at the time, I thought the ornithopters, which are the vehicles that they used to fly around Dune, um, were pretty well done. You know, there was, they were all CGI. And I thought the sandworms, the sandworms were very, were, were not very different, but they're somewhat different from the ones from the film. You know, they're they, like bumpy. But they, they looked very tactile, and uh, they were, I thought they were, they were cool, and, and they did a nice job. And I think they allowed, again, they, because they had the time, um, clearly, they allowed the story to unfold in a much more progressive way that is, was true to the book and also made us much more, uh, gave us as an audience the ability to empathize better with, with the characters and w- with what was going on in the story. Um, the guy who plays the Baron was outstanding i mean he was terrific and actually it reminds me there's even even a scene where the baron actually breaks the third wall and turns and talks addresses the audience remember that yeah you're right <laughs> i had almost forgotten about that as I, I didn't i actually didn't rewatch the miniseries i've seen it so many times but you're I, right yeah and, and that again that makes it feel like a uh like a like a greek play again you know he turns and, and actually talks to the audience and uh and it's interesting how they do that but boy the actor who who portrayed him does such a great job i believe his name is ian mcneese yeah friends in the uk might be even more familiar with some of his work because um i don't know him from a lot he's been in a couple of things i don't know offhand um, you're right. The ornithopters are portrayed as something that actually looks like it could fly, unlike in the Lynch version, which is just a box sort of floating. <laughs> and you know, apparently though, I saw some of the the Lynch drawings, or they they wanted to make it because when you, when you read the book, like when I read the book, when I when you the word ornithopter makes it sound like a a helicopter that looks like a bug is yeah. the way I always thought about it. Definitely. Uh, listen, you know, <laughs> it was '84. <laughs> But no, the Baron, we, we we get a great Baron. We get a Baron here who is, who has, who has, who's malevolent, but and and threatening, but also just very intelligent and you know not this ridiculous caricature of of foulness and of evil, but instead you know the kind of guy that you would be more concerned about because you could tell that you know plans within plans within plans are going on with this guy. 
and uh, the portrayal of, of, of him and his nephews, I think is it's it's just terrific. They do a great, great job as far as and again, I love the Lynch version because I don't consider it the Baron that I read in the book. It's this other thing that he created that's so hor- horrific and monstrous. But certainly the miniseries got that spot on, I think. I think they did a great job with that. Never trust a traitor. Not even one you create. Well, my noble duke. Are you enjoying the show? I hope so. I kept you alive so you could witness every precious moment of your betrayal. What? Oh. Oh, the boy. I don't know how to leave him to the desert. He and that gorgeous woman of yours. My men left them to explore the beauty of the sands of Arrakis. Perhaps I'll see some worms. We couldn't have all that noble blood all over our hands, now could we? Oh, the Emperor was quite insistent about that. Oh, yes. Your beloved Emperor. Just goes to show, never get more popular than the boss. Unless you intend to sack him. Did I say that? How impolitic of me. I I must be spending too much time with that idiot nephew of mine, Rabat. Still, you won't say anything, will you, my dear man? Perhaps we should get on with it, then. Get on with it! This is Cadley, Piter, Vendetta! And I am going to savor every minute of it. My family has hated the Artredes for generations. They have been the sad in our eyes the stink at our meals these arrogant heart traders always standing in our way i want leto to appreciate the beauty of what i've done to him i want him to know that i baron vladimir harkonnen am the instrument of his family's demise the extinction of House Artredis and the ascendance of House Harkonnen. Yeah, Fade Rautha, he seems smart, he's, you know, and, and the Raban is not like just, he's not eating a tongue out of a... <laughs> oh my god, that's right, I forgot about that. You know, the same scene where he walks in and grabs that cow tongue and starts chewing on it, talking to the Baron while Sting is in the shower, when he leaves, he knocks over this midget. He like walks by and he smacks this this like midget that's standing there doing something with a cow with a knife, and it's just so silly. I was just like, oh my god. <laughs> but you definitely get the idea that you know, and even Raban is is seems like a more somewhat competent, although somewhat dim character. And you know, Raban is 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 the Harkonnens, you know, lackey to go and take the blame for screwing up Arrakis, and then they can bring Fayed in to rule the day and save the day. But Never comes to fruition. No, um, and uh, I, I and I like the mini. In, in the end, I like the miniseries. I think that the follow-up miniseries they did, which maybe we can talk about a different time. But I think Children of Dune is a, is also very well done. I think maybe it kind of makes. I think uh, the the difference in, in in Children of Dune and Dune. I think it kind of humanizes some of the characters a little bit more. Um, but anyway, I I like the miniseries a lot. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, you know, the, another thing that's very different from the Lynch film that's in the miniseries is the portrayal of the Fremen um, from their physical look to the, to the way the still suits, still suits look in, in the miniseries, I think is very true to the book as, as you read it. But I got to say that the, the black rubber still suits of the Lynch film, they're cool looking on film. I mean, there's, they're, they're really cool, but they don't, they have nothing to do with what, what was described in the book. Not only that, if you wore that thing as a, supposedly to keep your water and you're losing it all out of the top of your head, pal. <laughs> that was clearly just an art direction kind of thing because they look good on camera as opposed to being practical. But uh, no, and so I, I like I like the Fremen in, in in the miniseries, and I think they, there's obviously ample opportunity to explore their culture, their religion, um, and 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 Paul and Jessica's integration into into their society I think is really well handled. I think you you get you get a chance to see. You know the distrust turning to somewhat trust to also a realization that Paul is meant for something really great, and how Paul then can manipulate the friend because he does he uses them for, for as a means to an end for his for what he's trying to accomplish. But uh, I think that the miniseries does a great job in sort of letting that play out in a, in a much more linear way in a way, and, and and like his relationship with Charney I think is much better handled and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, no, it, it is good, and uh, and of course you get the the siege orgy scene in the miniseries that you don't get in the Lynch film. Yeah, and let's just say that Chani, model model nami, as they say in Italy. <laughs> Watch it, folks. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just saying she's very she's very beautiful. The 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 Fremen are internationally cast. They're they're not a bunch of white guys with beards. They're um. It's. It, I think that the casting of this movie, for in a lot of spots, kind of or the miniseries rather, it lends itself to sort of an otherworldly thing because they did they did put a lot of European and different ethnic group actors in there, and I think it really lends itself to Dune a lot. It definitely does. So, so yeah, I mean, it's it's you know it's 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 an incredible universe, and it's had you know it's had a a, a, a huge impact on on science fiction. I mean, you can't. You, you, you can't not look at science fiction since the 1960s going forward and not acknowledge the influence that the story um, has had on science fiction, including films like Star Wars. You know, there's so much Dune in Star Wars beyond the obvious Tatooine. But I mean, things like Spice, um, you know, things like, you know, just the the Empire, things like the the, the great houses and the you know the you can almost look at the Jedi as being like a common like almost like the Bene Gesserit in a certain way that they have they have these powers and abilities and I mean and Lucas has been very upfront about how much Dune in terms of story influenced him in his creation of Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 one of the most influential. It's it's the like you said the Lord it's the Lord of the Rings of science fiction. Um, and if you haven't read it because maybe you're put off by the movie or whatever i'd say give it a second chance read it again i think you'll i think you'll really enjoy it there's there's a ton of ton of allegory to read into and it's really in the end just a really great great science fiction novel it's the greatest science fiction novel one of the greatest yeah i agree and so and before before we end let's let maybe let's talk real briefly just about the the follow-up books to that and then upon frank herbert's death the 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 works that kevin anderson and um and 
Brian Herbert have done. What uh, What did you think about the the other books in in that Frank Herbert did for the for the story? They they do get pretty out there. Uh, Children of Dune, Dune Messiah is so interesting because at the end of Dune, Paul is a hero. In Dune Messiah, he's a tyrant. Yep. You know, and and that transition is crazy. Um, Children uh, Children of Dune follows uh, his kids, and uh, and really his son Leto the second is fulfilling humankind's destiny on the golden path. And then as it goes on, I think, I mean, really Duncan Idaho becomes the central character somehow. I mean, Duncan, uh, again, he was portrayed by Patrick Stewart in the, in the film. Um, you know, this is a character that when you, when I read the, having immersed myself in the Dune universe, read, reading all the books, including the, all the ones, all the prequel ones that have been done by Brian um, Herbert, Duncan Idaho is such an integral part of it, and yet he's such a small part of Dune. Yeah, you know, he, he and you forget it. I'm reading about Duncan. I'm like, boy, there's very little Duncan Idaho in this in this first book. But boy, does he ever become an integral part of it? And and when we, you said I had some thoughts in the prequels, I'll give you my real. I'll really quick. I'll give you my thoughts. I I love uh, House Atreides. Those the uh, the house books. Um, I, I so people understand those those are immediate prequels. Right. I I, the, I was attracted to him because it is sort of familiar. Um, I think that while they're interesting and while they are pretty good in some aspects, I think Duke Leto's character really suffers. Yeah. Because in the novel, the original Dune novel, he's portrayed as this very, very... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, honorable. Mm-hmm. Now, and in the in the prequel, now he's got... Um, He's got a wife. He's got another, a whole other woman uh, before this, and um, and even in the um, the book, I think it was Paul of Dune. I, I think have you read that one? I read them all. Okay, Paul of Dune. He's going to get married to somebody else, which he would never do. And if you read Dune, you know that Duke Alito would never marry anybody. He's with Jessica. You know the 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 fact of of the, him not being married was just sort of to give the other houses hope that he might marry a daughter of theirs, but he wouldn't really do it. Right. Well, which is well explained in in the first book in Dune. So you're right. That's established early for his character. And um, also, uh, he has other concubines, if I'm not mistaken, in one of those books. Because uh, it's it, the the prequels are th- those three books: House of Trades, House Har- Harkonnen, and Karina, which is the emperor. Uh, so basically, they wrote three place in the in the years preceding or preceding Dune, and talk about the young Duke, the young Baron, the young Emperor, and how how they sort of come about. And I I, I agree. I, I don't think those books are as strong. The ones I like are the ones that go way the hell back and talk about the machine, the machine war. The jihad against the against thinking machines. Those I kind of dig because they're so far removed from the Dune universe. They take place, you know, thousands and thousands of years before Dune. Have you have you read those? Yeah, I've read all of those, and you're right. Those are those are better because they are so far in the past. I like Vorian Atreides. He goes from being a villain to being a hero, and the Harkonnen character goes from being a hero to being a villain. It's just it's all pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it, it does a good job setting up all those dynamics, and uh, and I, I'm 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 right now reading Sisterhood of Dune, um, which is I guess the, the the most recent one. Um, I have it on my Kindle, um, and there but there are a lot. I mean, they they've created 
they've created more content since his death um, than Frank Herbert actually did for these stories. And so, yeah, I, I would, I, you know, I think that for people that are really into the story of Dune, I think the first few, couple Dune books are good. I think the, I, I got to say, I'm not a big fan of Heretics of Dune or Chapter House Dune just because it gets so weird with Leo the Sandworm and it's like, it's so out there, you know, and with some of that with that, some of the material that uh, that Frank Herbert wrote as the the ending part of his story. Yeah, I again like I like the first 3 um uh, as far as the Frank Herbert books, you know, Children of Dune, Dune Messiah, the, the original Dune. Those are those three are pretty pretty good. Um okay. Yeah, you're like once you get to God Emperor and the other it's like it does give it gets way it's, out there. Man, I mean it's like what? <laughs> It's I I even you know and I read those I read those later books not more than I don't know maybe 12 15 years ago it wasn't that long ago I was an adult so I was capable of reading a book and you know trying to get uh, what Frank Herbert was trying to do here and I just was just confused I was like boy he is he I I don't know what's going on now the story got so convoluted and, and dense that it became for me unapproachable i couldn't even get to the story anymore i was like boy this is definitely not what i thought this was going to end up yeah i agree with you there well i think that's about all we can say on dune right now uh, it's a big big universe and uh but certainly one that i think all sci-fi fans and uh genre fans could should take a look at give it a chance again like you said if you've seen the film and didn't think much of it. Uh, give the book, give the book a try, or maybe could just give the miniseries a try. I think the miniseries can be watched, and you can walk away with a pretty decent understanding of what was trying to be, what was accomplished in the in the novel Dune. Absolutely. I, I mean, you have to read it. That's all I can say. Or watch the miniseries, and you know, you'll get a good sense, and then read the book. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it is a great book, it, and it, it it it's not. It, it's actually, I think, it's a very having re-listened to it. I think it's very approachable. It's not. I think. Lord of the Rings, I think, to this still is a challenging read. No two ways about it. It is incredibly dense, and it's it, it can be tough to, to chew through those three books, whereas Dune can is like a breath of fresh air compared to that. So I think that even though the universe is vast and, and everything that we talked about, I think that the book is still very readable, very approachable, and uh, and 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 not dated. I don't think it's it's dated at all. I think it's it's still it, it's a great novel, and it, definitely consider it. It is, it is, it is, it is great. Now, um, also, one my last thought on this is I'm throwing down the gauntlet to somebody. If you can make Game of Thrones an HBO show, make Dune an HBO show. All right. Uh, well, thanks for listening. Um, also, hey, come check us out on our on the uh, Treks and Sci-Fi Facebook page. We have fun on there. Just look for Treks and Sci-Fi on Facebook or come to the forum and sign up and, uh, and come chat. We have fun. Right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Chris, for, uh, for bringing me in on this. I really enjoyed doing this with you. And uh, as always, thank you, Rico, for giving us a chance to sit in the command chair for a day. Thanks, Rico. Um, and uh, I was nervous before doing this. This is my first time doing the recording, but as I say, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. <laughs> well done. <laughs> See you later, folks. Bye.